This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer or mobile device instantly stream by Netflix to save you time, money, and hassle. Free 30-day trial now at netflix.com slash APM. Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting feral pig. Interrupting feral pig. Ah! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm from APM American Public Media. This is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Jonathan Goldstein, host of the radio show Wiretap and author of the new book of essays, I'll Seize the Day Tomorrow. Mm. That'll help break the ice. Or make everyone at the party fear you. One of those two. Or just, yeah, run away. We'll hear more from Jonathan later. Also coming up, we speak with director Sofia Coppola about her new movie, The Bling Ring. Plus, cooking star Lydia Bastianich tells us how to behave, rock legends the zombies tell us how to bring a party to life, and rock and roll hall of famer Darlene Love tells us the secret to pop stardom. Church. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Wildfires are threatening residents in four western states. The director of the National Security Agency says the agency's surveillance programs are helping protect Americans. Iran is in the midst of a presidential campaign with a vote coming this Friday. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with Elena Shatkin. She is senior editor at Los Angeles Magazine. Elena, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Jackie Chan is working on a musical based on his life. Oh, man. What true story are you going to be talking about this <laughs> That's <weekend>? true. <laughs> is that, is that really real? happening? That's really happening. What gave him this idea? Really, I have no idea, except maybe that he thought it would sell tickets, and maybe it will. That, maybe it will. I mean, it does make sense for music. He was in the Peking Opera. Yeah, he was a, he was a child acrobat. He He's insanely flexible, and I could see him doing a lot of different things. His... I feel like his oeuvre translates across a lot of different mediums. But what about his singing voice, guys? That's, oh, we don't oh, know. Jackie Chan has actually released several albums in Asia. He has a pretty good singing voice, so... Really? Yeah. It's not clear whether he's simply writing the musical for somebody else to be in or writing it to star in, you know, as a star vehicle for himself. But... Who, would, who would play Jackie Chan? Who would play Chris Tucker? <laughs> That's really true. I think Robert Downey Jr. plays them both, right? In in an amazing dual role. I think so. The guy's a chameleon. But does his life story is it does, does it have an arc because he's just been going, you know, up 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 in the pop culture radar his whole career, That's right? That's true. What is the downside of the Jackie Chan story? I feel like he must have a downside. I feel like maybe he's addicted to pain pills or something because he's actually been in so many action flicks and he does his own stunts and he if you watch any of the outtakes from his movies, he gets hurt all the time. That's right. I cannot believe, mm. like, if this man does not have an oxycodone <laughs> monkey on his back, I personally will be amazingly shocked. All right. Well, There's... look out, Oklahoma and Book of Mormon, because he's going to kick your butt. Jackie, Jackie Chan, the musical is coming to town. Kung Fu version of Jazz Hands. Gonna... Elena, thanks for the small talk. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And now, time for cocktails and the libel suit from Jackie Chan. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like getting an email from history with a booze attachment. Right-click and save to desktop. Indeed. All right, we start, as always, with the history part. This week back in 1667, the first documented blood transfusion into a human took place. Which is not to say the ones that followed were successful. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. For a while, transfusions were a bloody mess. 
Some say the first one was tried 500 years ago on a dying pope. To save him, his not-so-advanced doctors literally fed him blood from three people who got a ducat each for their trouble, which they never spent because the procedure killed them and the pope. Many historians doubt that tale, but there's no denying what happened in June 1667 when a Frenchman named Jean-Baptiste Denis treated a wounded teenager by infusing him with sheep's blood. The kid recovered. It was a miracle. The problem? It really was kind of a miracle. The kid shouldn't have survived the transfusion of animal blood. The next time Denis tried it, his patient died. In fact, so did his next several patients, including a Swedish baron. Soon, the practice was banned. Eventually, of course, doctors figured out transfusions between people. The key being, we have four major blood types, and an infusion of the wrong one can kill you. Still, as a species, we've got it easy. Cows have 11 blood types. So that was the grisly history about the blood transfusion. Here to make sense of it is Mika, bartender at the Experimental Cocktail Club in Paris. Uh, Mika, what cocktail did this inspire you to make? Uh, it's a drink based on a, on a classic cocktail called uh, the Corpse Reviver. Oh yes, the Corpse Reviver, uh, apropos for blood transfusion. We will try to do a bloody version of, the, <laughs> of this cocktail. A bloody version. I guess there was no avoiding that. Uh, so, so what do you do? Had a fresh slice of uh, blood orange. Okay, a blood orange. 20 ml of lemon juice. One, one dash of absinthe. Of course, absinthe is normally used for ear removal, but I guess it works for blood transfusions too. Yeah. Go ahead. 20 ml of red lily. Which is uh, like a kind of a, a wine, like a sweet wine? Yeah, it's a French aperitif made uh, with different infusion of different fruits. Okay. And uh, 25 ml of, of gin. And you serve it in a, in a martini glass with the tomato, spicy tomato juice shot on the side. Ah, I like the spicy tomato juice. So this drink kind of sits squarely in the family of hangover recovery drinks, right? And say that you have to, to drink it before 11 a.m. <laughs> it's the perfect drink for, for hangover. Okay. Well, what do you want to call this drink then? Uh, why not the bloody corpse? Why not? Because you don't want to be thinking about a bloody corpse while you're hungover. Yeah. So, Brendan, the corpse reviver. A right? classic drink. Yeah, and also a classic lie. Because hmm. it, it implies booze is so refreshing it can wake the dead, you know? It's a liquid depressant. If people drink enough, it makes them lie down on the sidewalk, not become like whirling balls of energy. Well, unless they're stumbling downstairs and yeah. are in a ball at the end of the stairwell. But I think that's the stairs doing the job, not so much the drink. <laughs> All right. Well, the stairs are corpse survivors then. Okay. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to check out our website. You'll find all our cocktail recipes there. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made some small talk, had a drink, but the party can't really start without some music to play. So here with suggestions are Colin Blundstone and Rod Argent of revered band The Zombies. Yes. Rolling Stone magazine named their 1968 album Odyssey and Oracle one of the greatest records of all time. Their hits include Time of the Season, She's Not There, and back in 65, the kids really dug this one. And as she should tell you, If she tempts you 
Zombies playing Tell Her No on the TV show Hullabaloo. Now here are Colin and Rod to suggest tunes from other musicians. Hi, this is Colin Blonson. I'm lead singer with the Zombies. And uh, this is Rod Argent, and uh, I'm, I sing but also play keyboards with the Zombies. This is our dinner party soundtrack. The wind is in from Africa. Last night I couldn't sleep. Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie, but it's really not my home. Okay, I think... I would like some Joni Mitchell. I've always found that I've gone back to uh, the greats that influenced me in my formative years when I want to listen to music just purely for pleasure. And um, for people who are just arriving, I would play Carrie because it's a really up-tempo song. It's from her album called Blue and it's just magical. I don't remember the first time I heard it, to be absolutely honest, but I can just tell you that it's made such a huge impression on me that if ever I want a, a little pick-up, you know, when, during the day, that's a song I put on and it just brings a smile on my face. Smash our empty glasses down Let's have a round for these freaks and these soldiers I know that everyone who comes to my house, as soon as they come through the door, if they hear Joni Mitchell, they will be in just such a great mood. And if they're not, they have to leave. <laughs> I said, oh, you're a mean old daddy, but you're out of sight. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose um, something because it actually has some importance to me. The first record that turned me on to rock and roll completely was actually Elvis singing Hound Dog. But pretty soon after that, um, I heard the original, which was Big Mama Thornton. You ain't nothing but a hound. I would love to choose that track because it completely knocked my socks off in, in the same way that Elvis did, but it was really my introduction to a whole raft of black music that was just magical for me. I still think that, that's, that that song holds up. I play it uh, quite frequently, actually. That and uh, a B.B. King song called Three O'Clock Blues, which he recorded in about 1951 or something. It was his first ever single. But in fact, I'm going to stick with the, the Big Mama Thornton choice because it still sounds wonderful. Okay, with the number three track, I'm hoping that by now, especially if it's winter, we would be having some Chianti Classico or some Frescati for those that like to drink white wine. So we'll be starting to feel a little bit loose. And so I think I go for Long Tall Sally by Little Richard. Gonna tell Aunt Mary about Uncle John. He claimed he has a misery, but he's having a lot of fun, oh baby. Yes, baby. I mean, Chianti Classico, you've got to get the right one. Is, is a very, it's a lovely light Italian wine. And it's something that you can drink in quite large quantities. <laughs> and I would like to feel everyone's feeling fairly loose and ready for a good old knees up. Yeah, yeah, baby. Ooh, baby. 
if that doesn't go and go, nothing will. If it's a hot summer's night and we're drinking cold beer, then we I could have the Beach Boys on here. <laughs> we could have either the Beach Boys, anything from Pet Sounds, or I was thinking maybe the Eagles. New Boy in Town, maybe. You know, you can't beat it. Setting sun, a cold beer, and the Eagles. What more could you ask for in life? Johnny, come lately. Well, I know Colin would agree with me here that neither of us would ever play any of our own stuff at a dinner party anyway. I would play Ray Charles or even uh, the Isley Brothers, for instance. Um, we toured with the Isleys right at the beginning. I mean, that could be another choice. I mean, Caravan of Love, something like that. But if I had to put something on, just at this minute in time, I would choose a moment in time. Dinner Party Soundtrack, courtesy of Rod Argent and Colin Blundstone of The Zombies. They launched a U.S. tour this week, and I was lucky enough to see them play in a living room during the South by Southwest Festival. We have video of that at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a short break, but stick around. Coming up, Sofia Coppola shares her secret skills, and I learn all about the tonic part of gin and tonic when the Dinner Party Download continues. This podcast is supported by Netflix Instant Streaming. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your computer, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. Streamed now by Netflix, a great value. Netflix Streaming has lots of movie and television options, including past seasons of Project Runway, Mad Men, and Arrested Development. Watch them using Netflix Instant Streaming and find thousands of other TV series and movies during your free 30-day trial at netflix.com. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we visit one half of Summer's favorite duo, a.k.a. Tonic. And in a few minutes, author Jonathan Goldstein reads from his new book, I'll Seize the Day Tomorrow. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes. Today. All right. And this week it is Sofia Coppola. She's been making films since 1999 when she directed and co-wrote The Virgin Suicides. Her follow-up Lost in Translation was nominated for three Oscars, including Best Picture. Her latest is the very fun and very fascinating movie The Bling Ring, which is based on the true story of a group of teens who stole three million bucks worth of luxury items from the homes of Hollywood celebrities. When I spoke to Sophia this week, I asked if she'd followed the news story as it unfolded in real life. I wasn't following it at the time. I I remember seeing it on the news and um, thinking, what a wild story, but I didn't get into it. And then um, I was on the airplane, and um, a friend had a copy of Vanity Fair, and I started reading the article about those kids called The Suspects Were Louboutins that Nancy (laughs) Joe Sales wrote, and um, to hear the kids' perspective on it. And um, it, it read like a movie to me, I felt like. Yeah. Someone's got to be making a movie of this. <laughs> and it turned out to be you. Yeah, I didn't think it would be, but um, and I met Nancy Joe, and she had so many more interesting stories that couldn't fit in, in the article, and she gave me a lot of her transcripts, and the more I read about it, the more fascinating I thought it was. What about the perspectives of those kids was, was so fascinating to you? I, um, 
just the that uh, they were just so engulfed in um, that world that they you know this kind of celebrity culture that they were into and the boy talked about all his fans on Facebook and how you know how they became sort of like these celebrities that they were into and the thieves themselves yeah they became celebrities on, on their own in a way yeah and one of the girls was being interviewed by Vanity Fair and wouldn't didn't want to talk about the burglaries as if you know they were just there to interview her about her you know style or opinions and <laughs> her life the burglaries were secondary yeah exactly so just just the you know whole idea of how they were so obsessed with this kind of tablet celebrity culture and then they sort of became a part of it you know it's interesting I saw this movie right after seeing Harmony Korine's film Spring Breakers. Very different movies. That one's more of a noir, and this is more kind of blatantly fun and satirical. But both of these are about teens wallowing in that shallow culture you're speaking of. What What do you think is in the zeitgeist that indie film is, is turning to this as a subject? Yeah, I haven't seen Spring Breakers, but yeah, from what I can tell, it's definitely something's in the air. Because I just think just that part of our culture is so big right now and seems to be growing that it, it makes sense that we'd be looking at that are you on do you have a facebook page i don't <laughs> is that by design yeah i just um i just feel like i i'm so busy in my real in my, <laughs> my real life that i can't imagine having a whole other virtual one but i yeah i feel like i get to share enough of myself through promoting my movies <laughs> yes. that i don't have a desire to share more you're welcome sophia i'm helping you do that right now yeah um i have to ask paris hilton who's, of course, one of the celebrities whose homes were burgled, makes a, a cameo appearance in the movie as herself. And it's my understanding you shot the scenes set in her home in her home. Is that right? Yes, we shot the scenes of Paris's house at her real house. So I think it's exciting for the audience to get to see the real inside Paris's world. It is, but what what do you want us to draw from that, that she was kind of a collaborator with you in this film? I know, well, I thought, you know, you, you try to make something, I, I try to make it authentic, and so I, I wanted to see her real house, and a friend of mine knew her and said, oh, do you, do you want to go see it? And she let us in, and then, you know, she wanted to help us, and she showed me some surveillance footage from the real kids in her house. And, you know, for me, investigating the story, it was so exciting to be in one of the real places. Plus, I've never seen anywhere like Paris's house. I was, I was going to ask you, you come from a showbiz family of some means, but that house is extravagant to such an extreme. What was your first reaction? Yeah, I've never seen anything like it in the Paris pillows. And, and it's, it's um, you know, like this kind of girly playhouse. And it's, it's kind of how you would imagine Paris to live. And I, I like that she's so dedicated to her persona. <laughs> That's true. It takes a lot of dedication and money. But I mean, I think some of the power of the film is that we're we're dazzled by that. But we're also, especially in, you know, the economic times we've just gone through, can be repelled by just the overabundance of wealth in that house. Doesn't letting the real Paris in on the joke in some way, like collaborating with her, sort of blunt that part of the satire? I mean, I think she's, she has her whole persona. And I think, you know, there's a playfulness in it. And I think yeah, it's definitely to excess. But I think there's a part in the movie that I wanted it to be fun and seductive. And, it, you know, it's fun to look at, but then also it's too much and have the audience experience, you know, how they feel about it and what's important to them. Did, did you talk to her about that, that this is how it might come off? This this could be both a good and a bad thing? No, the fact that she said that she would let us film in her house, I was just like, yes, we want to film there. <laughs> there so we didn't, no we didn't have long discussions about it. No further conversation necessary. <laughs> But she's seen it and she and she likes it, so she's much more aware of it and has a sense of humor more than you would expect. All right, we have two standard questions that we ask everyone on the show. Okay. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? 
What is the question that you're sick of answering? Yeah, yeah I felt like right now I've been promoting my movie, so I'm a little burnt on... Um, what tra- what are you to doing the bling ring or uh, sorry <laughs> no but i I'm actually i'm i'm glad to um get it out there so. i'm sure but about that question you could ask me anything at dinner <laughs> okay <laughs> invite me over man i have plenty our second question is tell us something we don't know and this can be about anything it can be about yourself or just some random piece of trivia about the world oh well that that Paris Hilton has a sense of humor that was something i learned on this movie um, certainly true. Something that you wouldn't know. Well, I felt myself. I can. I won't do it, but I can sing the Filipino national anthem. So that's something you wouldn't know you, about me. You won't me. do it. Come on. No. no. This is radio gold. No, no. Can no. you even recite it, like in in Filipino? No, I don't think I would know how to. I can. I could sing it cause when I was a little kid. We lived in the Philippines during apocalypse. Now, so that's um. Oh, that's right. That that's where your father shot Apocalypse Now. That's not that interesting. Sorry, I was trying to think of something interesting to share. That with actually you. is kind of interesting. I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that you would have been like very young when Apocalypse Now was being shot, and it would have. Do you consider that kind of your first home? I mean, I have my early memories of being there because I was four or five. What a, an incredible childhood, especially on that movie, which was known to be kind of plagued by disaster. Were you even aware of kind of what was going on? No, no, I just thought it was fun to be in the jungle and being in <laughs> helicopters and. Things. And Brendan, we should say, for those perhaps too young to be familiar, Apocalypse Now is, of course, Francis Ford Coppola's classic movie about Vietnam. Yes, and bottom line, it is not a children's movie. That's right. You probably don't want to take your child to the Apocalypse Now theme park. Yeah. Ride on a real riverboat, (laughs) listening to Wagner. (laughs) Our jungle tiger will freak you out. Uh, But our website is totally family-friendly, folks. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. eavesdrop. Jonathan Goldstein hosts the CBC's comedy and storytelling radio program Wiretap. His writing has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to GQ. Today we overhear him read an excerpt from his latest project. Hello, I'm Jonathan Goldstein and I have a new book out called I'll Seize the Day Tomorrow and it's about turning 40. This is a section from the book that I'll be reading in honor of Father's Day. My father lives in the suburbs and doesn't get out much. When he does go out, he enjoys himself. The man is certainly capable of joy. It's just that his happiness makes my mother uncomfortable. Whenever he starts to come out of his shell, my mother likes to cram him right back in there. So disco dancing at weddings, eating dessert with too much gusto, even drumming on the kitchen table to a radio jingle, all rub my mother the wrong way. If my father even laughs too loudly, My mother tells him he's getting punchy. That usually quiets him down. So the other day, the first order of business was getting him out of the house. After all, it was his birthday. Come over, I said to him over the phone. We'll go out and celebrate a little. Just you and me. All we were going to do was head downtown for a bite to eat. But my father is wonderfully easy to please. One time, about ten years ago, we took a walk to the old part of the city, and he still talks about it to this day. Remember how hot it was? My father asks me every few months. Remember how we had to stop into that convenience store and each of us got a soda? You got a Coke, and so did I. We drank them, straight from the can, no straw, no cup. 
like street hustlers. When he got to my house, I offered to do the driving. He got into the passenger seat, and right off the bat, he said, being chauffeured makes me feel like I'm on vacation. What do you want to do, I asked. He waved a hand and told me he didn't need pampering. Pampering. Since the mid-80s, the man has been using the same 99-cent VHS tape to record and re-record the same documentaries about Nazi hunting. He has a meatball-shaped wallet made of vinyl, fat with expired coupons. When he sits down, he looks like a tipping weeble wobble. The first thing I wanted to do was find us a fancy bar. My father enjoys a drink, and at home he usually can't enjoy one properly. Unfortunately, traffic was bad, and parking was even worse. So by the time we found a spot, it was 4.30, and my father was ready for supper. After debating the meaning of various contradictory parking signs with the fervor of Talmud scholars, my father looked around. The area looks seedy, he said. We checked and rechecked the car doors and windows, and finally, confident that the Kleenex box, empty pack of chiclets, and Chicago's greatest hits cassette on the dashboard were going to be safe, we were on our way. As we walked along, my father commented on everything he saw, his index fingers pointing every which way, like he was a character in a Menudo video going to a shopping mall for the first time. A panhandler, a boy with a hoop through his lip like a witch doctor, an unsavory-looking character who might be a pickpocket. After about five minutes, we came to a Middle Eastern restaurant, which, to be honest, was more of a cafeteria. We each ordered a big plate of chicken and rice, and as we ate, we each drank a beer. Beer helped my father to relax. Rather than eating hunched over as though planning a prison break, he reclined and looked around. At home, my father finishes a great many of his meals with the plate yanked away in mid-bite forced to finish his corn on the cob, stooped over the sink. What kind of rice is this, he asked. White, I said. I'll have to ask your mother to buy some. When we were finished eating, we went back to the car. There were no tickets on the windshield, and Chicago's greatest hits was still on the dashboard. The afternoon had been a success. I called the house later to make sure my father had made it back okay, and my mother answered. He had such a fabulous time with you today, she said a little suspiciously. He can't stop talking about it. I asked her if he enjoyed the meal we had, and she told me not to feed my father garbage. Beer keeps him up all night, and he has to watch his cholesterol. Humorist Jonathan Goldstein, his new memoir is called I'll Seize the Day Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Enrico, when I say tonic water, what do you think of? I think of Jin's special pal. That's right. Jin's best friend. But, but yes. that's it, right? Nothing more. Because no. tonic, as we know it, is just that clear, mass-produced, mm. mildly bitter companion to gin, you know? It's a very milk toast friend for poor gin. Yeah. Sad. Well, well, there's hope for gin because many bars are now making their own tonics, and they're way more complex and interesting than the stuff your average grocery store sells. That's nice. At Michelin-starred restaurant Oceana, beverage director Pedro Gonzalez offers four different homemade tonics. 
When I met with him earlier this week, I remarked that summer was gin and tonic season. No, wait a minute. Gin and tonic season is all year round, man. There's <laughs> not there's not one season. Really? If it's if it was snowing outside, you would come in and have an ice cold gin and tonic? Yeah. Of course. All right, so wh- where does tonic come from anyway? Tonic is basically uh, quinine. Quinine comes from a tree, probably originally in Peru. It's called the chincona tree, and the quinine itself comes from the chincona bark. The native South American Indians used to chew on this bark or make a tea with it after uh, a hard day of hunting or agricultural a- activity. Basically, it's a muscle relaxant. It, it helps accelerate the recovery process of the muscles so that you can relax, get a good night's sleep, and refresh in the morning. So, so a gin and tonic you're saying is like, a ref- like after Gatorade and workouts, I should turn to a gin and tonic. Is that what you're suggesting professionally? Oh, definitely. Uh, absolutely. You know, gin and tonic came about a um, long time ago. Uh, I believe it was Thomas Cook that went down to Peru at some point in history. Uh, when uh, England was colonizing a lot of different areas, specifically uh, India. And he found that the Native Americans uh, down there were not getting malaria. And he's like, why the hell are these people not getting malaria? You know? And quinine is not just good as a muscle relaxant. It's a preventative measure for malaria. Uh, you, you don't get malaria and then this cures it. This, this kind of prevents it. So it's like a shield. Exactly. So... He's like, well, a lot of the uh, English soldiers back in India are, are, are getting malaria and dying left and right. You know, what do we do? So takes quinine back to, to India and, and tells the soldiers, hey, you guys should drink this. It prevents malaria. You don't want to die, do you? Uh, so like, no. So they try it and they think it's foul. It's terrible. So next step is how the hell do we get them to have quinine you know how are we going to get navy guys doing just quinine well that's the, the whole navy strength and the, the whole deal uh plymouth was was the first gin uh, i believe to be used for gin and tonic so that's what they did so they paired it with gin yeah man they rationed uh i believe is a pint a day of gin to these soldiers and uh and the rest is history now gin and tonics are part of the british identity as much as tea and the queen for sure. So I'm looking at your tonics now. They're beautiful. And the first thing you notice is that there's color in them. They look like different shades of tea. Where is that color coming from? Is that coming from that powder? Indeed it is. Uh, it doesn't just come from uh, the chincona bark, which is kind of a brown, a light brown color. There's also little bits of clove and cinnamon and, and, and bay leaf and cardamom, uh, different kinds of citrus and lemongrass and ginger and all those kind of things. There's a lot of things in there that actually really accentuate the botanicals in the tonic. So how do you go about making a tonic water? You're basically putting all these ingredients in and infusing it. Uh, Basically, like you get a couple of coffee filters and put your chincona uh, bark powder in there with, you know, whatever ingredients that you want. You put that in the coffee filter, tie the coffee filter, essentially make like a... Like a tea bag. Exactly. And then you boil it, and uh, you know how you dunk the tea bag to extract, you know, flavor and color and, and that kind of thing? You basically do the same thing under a low flame, and once that's done, you let it cool down, refrigerate it, just add a, a couple of ounces to a, to a glass, club soda, ice, little lemon juice or lime juice, uh, and, and you're done. So basically what makes a tonic a tonic is the quinine, and then after that you can pretty much add anything you want. Well, that's why I have four different kinds. The bitter has no sugar whatsoever. So maybe let's start with that one. Can I taste it now? Yeah, go ahead, man. Be my guest. 
I almost taste notes of like nutmeg or cinnamon. Sure, absolutely. Clove will come by, the ginger usually comes out, the cinnamon as well kind of comes across, and then all the citrusy kind of notes come across as well. All right, so I'm going to jump right ahead to the, to the spicy tonic. It, it's got a little kick to it. I recommend that you take a small sip at a time. All right, here we go. Wow. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my Definitely like jalapeno in there or no. something. No jalapeno, just uh, capsaicin. What is that? Is that a fancy word for burn your mouth off pepper? <laughs> no, man. It's basically the ingredient that you find in most hot peppers. So, wow, Brendan, that last tonic didn't sound like a muscle relaxant at all. <laughs> Not really. Very tense sounding. But I was drinking it straight, and Pedro says that his spicy tonic in particular and other gin and tonics pair well with uncooked seafood like ceviche and pêche crudo. Oh, that's more friends for gin. That's right. That's nice. Fish friends. <laughs> Folks, coming up, food guru Lydia Bastianich stops by, and soul singer Darlene Love talks about her life standing 20 feet from stardom. That's when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new song from Washed Out. They have a new album coming out later this summer. Also, we speak with Morgan Neville, director of the new documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. And one of the subjects in the film will be here, too. Soul great Darlene Love. Nice. But first... It's time to answer your etiquette questions. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Lydia Bastianich. She opened her first Italian restaurant in Queens, New York, circa 1971. She now runs several more around the country, but many know her best as a fixture on public television cooking shows for the last 15 years or so. The latest edition of her series of specials, Lydia Celebrates America, airs on June 28th. And Lydia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Rico. Thank you, Brendan. This upcoming episode subtitle is Freedom and Independence. And in it, you meet and you speak with a number of Americans telling stories of finding or experiencing kind of American-style freedom. But you were a chef, so I want to ask how you feel that idea of freedom plays out in terms of food in this country. Like, what Can you taste the freedom in American Abs- food? Freedom absolutely. Fries? You know, I did research on the Italian-Americans. How did they influence the American culture, how the food that they found influenced how they cooked? But along the way, I saw the different ethnicities. You know, I mean, now I'm into Korean. Love it. That kimchi and all that pickled vegetables. Mm. Uh, I celebrate that diversity. That's the, 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 the beauty of this country. So there are all these different cultures you explore in America, and you yourself have a lot of different cultures in your background. You know, you're known best as an Italian-American chef, but as a person of Croatian descent, I'd like to point out your town was part of Italy, but became part of Croatia shortly after you were born. Did Croatian cooking influence you at all? Absolutely. You know, in a border situation, uh, who you are, what you speak, I mean, you know, I I now speak five languages, but Mm. you're born at least bilingual. And the food reflects that, reflects the Slavic, the Germanic from the north. Mm. So for me to do spetzel, for me to do sauerkraut, for me to do palachinka, the Austro-Hungarian occupation of that area, you know, strudel. Palachinka was my my grandmother's (laughs) specialty. It's a crepe where you can fill it up with sweet or savory and it's delicious. Yes, simple crepe, you know, nice mm. and thin and uh, you know when you have it's it's like a painter you have a palette a rich palette the painting can be beautiful is there are there maybe croatian analogs to italian yes, dishes yes yes you know pasta fagioli um, yes. yeah, beans. pasta with beans yeah. okay right. yotta 
Yota is beans and sauerkraut instead of pasta. We put sauerkraut in there, and that's a very popular soup. Because cabbage is more prevalent. Exactly, and that's the Slavic influence. Sounds good. Well, maybe you can whip us up a batch after yes. we ask you. <laughs> We're done taping. Weirdly, that's all we have time for. we yeah, got to go sorry. eat with Lydia. Well, first, we need to ask you some, some of the questions our listeners sent in for you. Unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. They're just getting in the way of the food. So let's begin with uh, Brett in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Brett writes, I have a family with several less than adventurous eaters. I want to try cooking new foods for them, but the mere thought of using a different component freaks them out. Should I make a dish and lie? Hey, everyone, it's chicken. Make two dishes and let them decide. One that has chicken and one with another ingredient, for instance. Yeah, or let them decide. Just stay traditional and make one dish with the chicken and experiment when I'm alone. I think you certainly should experiment when you're alone and keep on cooking. But I think that you should be free to move on to different territory, if you will, to add a spice, to add a different vegetables. But I think you should tell them as well. You know, you should say, listen, uh, I love cooking. Uh, you know, you're kind of keeping me in a box. We're going to go mm-hmm. a little bit out of the box. I hope you like it. And if not, uh, have a plate of simple pasta and butter sauce for them. But, you oh, know, you, you know, have, have an alter- yeah. a little alternative or something for them. But I absolutely you should push the edge. Uh, you should not uh, diversify three, four new things at once. Uh, Choose one thing and add it to the dish. All but right. it's better. You, but won't they feel like they're they're like a child though? It's like I just get a plate of pasta. I came over here. I just get butter pasta. Well, well a little bit. They should feel that way. Exactly. You know, he's he's not more. ignoring <laughs> them. But you know, there's a lesson to be learned here. You got to move on. You got to experiment. You got to right. taste. Live a and he's willing to do it for them. That's, That's nicer cool. than what I would do. I would just give them the phone number of Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> Hit the road. Come on. All right. There's your guidance, Brett in Harrisburg. Here is a little something from Ryan in St. Louis, Missouri. Ryan writes, my wife and I are moving back in with my parents for a few months. My wife Uh has many food intolerances to some very common ingredients. This is quite a list, uh, including garlic, onions, yeast, corn, and almost all Italian seasoning. Uh, He says, it's difficult for others to make food for my wife, including my very caring mother who enjoys cooking. Sounds like trouble. Yeah. He asked, what's a good way to broach the subject of improving his mother's food well, preparation. You know, short of running, short of running two kitchens, uh, <laughs> what I would do is actually I would make a list of all the ingredients that your wife cannot eat or is allergic to, and okay. then you just be positive. We're really looking forward to your cooking. The only thing that we ask you to respect is this list. Mm-hmm. I think mom will get it. That's yeah. a pretty well, huge list, though. I mean, garlics and onions, that's but, everything. But I noticed the list has lots of Italian ingredients and not yeah. the stereotype, but his name's Ryan. So maybe his mother's Irish and maybe this won't be <laughs> a problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if you're dealing with me. <laughs> yeah, you're their worst nightmare. <laughs> but I, I could circumvent it, absolutely. You're an expert. All right, here's a small question we have, but I, I think it's, I've thought about this myself. It comes from Robin in New Jersey. Robin asks, is it really that bad to cut your pasta instead of using a large spoon to twirl? Ah, uh, sacrilegious. Uh, and me too. I agree. I agree. Can't take it. Ah, you know, you have the short pasta. If you choose short pasta, penne, rigatoni, then you mm-hmm. use that pasta. Sure. But when you're using spaghetti or linguine, the beauty of it is precisely that this kind of 
twirling of this pasta, yeah. then it kind of un unfurls in your mouth mm -hmm. and you the begin to kill. bite and it's al dente. Those are all sensations that any pasta lover really wants, the texture, the tactile element. Absolutely. And, you know, you start with cutting it up and then you end with making airplane sounds. I mean, Robin, e grow up. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> then you end up with the spoon eating it up and it's like soup. And, ah, yeah. no, 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 don't go there. That's for children. So I'll just move on to Abigail in Pittsburgh, PA, my hometown. Abigail writes, I am a college freshman, and about once a month, one of my friend's parents will stop by and take us all out to dinner. What's a good way to determine how much my meal should cost? I don't want to be rude and get something incredibly expensive because I'm not paying. But then again, I'm in college and being offered real non-dining hall food for free. I, I think that if the parents invite you and they take you to a restaurant, they know the parameters and the expenditures in those restaurants. Yeah. So you're within limits. You can order just about anything you feel like having. Nice. Don't order two orders of steak or yeah. and then, you know, <laughs> take one home with you or I mean be. But thank them and be grateful and tell them exactly what you said to me, you know. I'm in college and I appreciate a good meal. <laughs> sure. Caviar all the way. <laughs> all right. So here's a question that we ask each of our etiquette guests. What's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. Oh, my God. Yes. I must say, two years ago when Pope Benedict came to the United States, I mm. was asked to cook for him. What? Yes. I So I did a little research. His mother was a chef, so he was very much into food. Oh, so I said, man. you know, I'm going to go and do my thing. So you know what I did? I did goulash. I did spetzels. Mm, I did spetzel. apple strudel. And so these comfort foods from Germany. He, yeah. He would walk through the house. We would cook. And it was kind of very intimate. And he was very open. Uh, he blessed everything, even every dishwasher and everybody. He was just wonderful. Wow. Did the party end and up so, in the kitchen like it usually does? Pope just hanging out? No, no. But when I, I got to tell you, I have a 93-year-old mother. So I came home and I said, I cook for the Pope. And she said, who next? And she stretched her hands and looked up in the sky. <laughs> I says, I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> no, not for a while. Well, Lydia, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, my pleasure. Chef and TV host Lydia Bastianich. Her special Lydia Celebrates America, Freedom and Independence airs June 28th. And if you've got etiquette issues, food-related or otherwise, send them via our website dinnerpartydownload.org And now, it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party-worthy topic. Our subject is backup singers, and I am joined by two experts. Morgan Neville, director of the new documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, which is about backup singers and popular music, and Darlene Love, a popular backup singer and member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You've heard her sing the Christmas classic, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. Morgan, I want to start with you. What inspired this movie? Was it a particular song, a well, particular performance? I have to give all credit to my producer, Gil Friesen. I mean, it was Gil's idea to do it, and Gil had a moment like this. He said he had gone to see Leonard Cohen a concert. Okay. And uh, he said he had smoked a joint beforehand. I don't know how relevant that is, other than he spent the entire... It sets a, it sets a mood. He said he spent the entire concert fixated on the backup singers and kept wondering to himself, what's their story? And slowly, over the course of about a year, he talked himself into producing this documentary. So how did you find out who you should profile? Because as the movie makes clear, these singers aren't exactly household names. No, I mean, we had very little uh, entree <laughs> into that world. I mean, we didn't know where to go. 
Um, and really, Darlene was the one that opened the door for us and because she sat down with Gil at the very beginning and um, kind of introduced us into that world. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. So you were, with your group, The Blossoms, one of the most prolific session backup singers in the 60s. Um, if I was going to play a clip of your music, what, what would you suggest I played? The ones that I'm known for is He's a Rebel, the Do Run Run, He's Sure the Boy I Love, and my name's not on them. <laughs> <laughs> So, Darlene, your voice is everywhere, your songs are hits, yet no one knows your name because you're just a backup singer. Did that bother you? No, not at first, because that's what I started out doing. I started out really as a background singer. When I got with the group, The Blossoms, they were already a group, but they weren't doing background yet. Their uh, manager at the time was an arranger. He was doing a lot of sessions, so this session came up, and they asked him if he knew any singers that could do background. And he said, yes. Happens, and that was our first session. Scared the out of us. I mean, come on. <laughs> and the first session with James Darren. Oh, that wow. was our very, very yeah. first session. And from that, whatever they wanted us to do, we could do. If yeah, we had to sound country and western, or black, or gospel, whatever. Well, you know. at one point in the movie, Lou Adler, the famous record producer who worked with you, said that they would just give you kind of general notes about where the song was going, and you would take it from there. You were only a teenager when you and your group, The Blossoms, were doing this backup singing. How did you instinctively know how to follow these great musicians from church. Elvis to Frank Sinatra? Church. Really? <laughs> you prayed or you practiced in church? Practice, you yeah. know, because my father was a preacher and um, we were in the choir. We learned how to sing together. But you learn how to uh, sing behind the gospel singer, whoever was singing the lead. Yeah. And we, I did, did that from the time I was like 10 years old until I started working with the Blossoms. And I started working with the Blossoms when I was 17. So, Morgan, to make this movie, you had to immerse yourself in background singing culture for a couple of years. Give us some insight into the psychology of a backup singer. Do they all secretly want to be in the spotlight and they just haven't made it? Or are most of them content with being in the background. I mean, it's the whole range of experiences. You know, I, I think it's, I want to be careful not to say that everybody wants to be a lead singer because that's not at all true. And people like The Waters, for instance, to this legendary family of backup singers who yeah. s- have sung on everything from You Lost That Love and Feeling to Adele 21. And they told me, you know, we've sung behind more artists that had one hit and they had a three-year career or a five-year career and they vanished and we never heard from them again. And we've been paid to sing and have families and homes and nice lives. And we're still doing it. After 50 years, they're still doing it. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that. People like The Waters and Lisa Fisher in our film. You know, Lisa Fisher is somebody that really could have had a big solo career but really had no interest in it because, you know, the thing about being 20 feet from stardom is you see all the bad stuff at the front of the stage too, not just the good stuff. You see what you have to do and go through to be a lead singer. And it's not always something you want to do. And I get that. The lead singer actually is depending on us to keep whatever's going on, to keep it going, because they never sing all the way through a lot of times, you know. But we're back there singing their parts, too. It's always somebody singing the lead singer's part, especially when we was working for Cher. (laughs) 
But you, you, in the movie, you have Bruce Springsteen, you have Sting, you have Mick Jagger talking about how how willing were they? How were these? That's what I want lead to know. singers <laughs> to to open up about this stuff. I mean, it's never easy to corral all those right. people, sure. <laughs> but it wasn't as hard as you might think. And you know, once we actually talked to them, it worked so well. I mean, it was something they'd never talked about before, and it was something that they obviously knew about, and nobody understands what the backup singer brings more than the lead singer yeah. because the you know, the backup singers know all the secrets of what the lead singer can and can't do. And uh, Darlene's laughing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Darlene. Well, for the end of this interview, I want to engage in a little bit of fantasy. If you were recording a solo album this week and you could have anyone sing backup for you, who would you pick? First of all, the first one I would pull up would be Luther Vandross. Ah. He is one of the greatest background singers. The other one would be Aretha Franklin. All right. Because she is another background singer. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and Lisa Fisher, oh please. That's right, another another background sing, singing yes, feature in this. And she could sing with me any day. <laughs> I think we have a project right here. If Lou Adler if we could probably pull some of them up, Luther's no longer here with us. He is but. unfortunately gone, but it would be a great album. That's legendary background singer Darlene Love and director Morgan Neville of the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. The film comes out this weekend, and the soundtrack is available Tuesday. And there's a scene in the film, Rico, about the recording of the Rolling Stone hit, Gimme Shelter, yeah. that is worth the price of admission alone. I, I still get goosebumps. I definitely have to check that out. And now I have time to because, folks, that is the dinner party download for this week. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Our interns are James Delahousse, Davy Kim, and Brittany Martin. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks this week to Bill Lance and all our friends at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Washed Out is the solo project of musician Ernest Green. Later this summer, he'll release the follow-up to his successful 2011 debut, Within and Without. The new album is called Paracosm, and this track is called It All Feels Right. Bon appétit.
That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Brendan Francis Noonan. Uh, guys, I don't think radio hosts need backup singers. I don't think backup singers need hosts. Wait, what? What?